everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're well wherever you are as we are midway through August. Summer seems to have come and gone, and time seems to be going really fast, at least for me. I'm back in Zhuhai, and I've been mostly preparing for my classes for the fall and doing some new works for a show I'll be having in November, but otherwise I have nothing new to report. But for this week, I have a really great artist I want to present to you, so let's get on with the introductions. For today, I'm interviewing Camilo Godoy an artist and educator born in Bogota, Colombia and based in New York City. His multidisciplinary projects are concerned with political histories and memories. Camilo's work engaged with the intersection of history, race, gender, and sexuality, and are informed by queer, Latinx, feminist, and Black perspectives. Camilo got his BFA at Parsons and is currently completing an MFA at Columbia University which we discuss in greater detail the politics surrounding elite institutions and academia in the art world. We also get into how Camilo mines archival materials for his work, the role of an educator, the joy of art interviews, and his most recent solo show at OCD Chinatown. Camilo is also part of the group shows at the Leslie Lohman Museum in New York City and at Momentum 11 in Norway. If you're near those places, please go check out those shows. I had a lot of fun talking with Camilo, and I hope you appreciate what he has to say as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy the show. So I, you know, something really interesting has happened with my body uh-huh. now that it's gotten very warm. Uh-huh. I usually wake my body. I don't set any alarms. I always leave my windows open i have these mm-hmm. like shades mm-hmm. but i always open them i like to wake up with the sun yeah, yeah. uh and i usually wake up at 7 a.m like my body clock just sort of like whoops, 7 a.m but since it's gotten warm my body's just been waking up at six and so this morning i woke up at six i looked at the clock in the stove and it was 6 a.m. and I was like, I went back to bed. I was like, nope, just. And so I slept another extra hour and then I woke up at like seven something and then uh-huh. made tea and then read yeah. something and then answer some emails. And uh, here I am. All right. Yeah. So, but you're, you were born in uh, Bogota, Colombia, which is also quite hot, right? It's, it's, it's relatively warm there or is it quite cold? So Colombia has multiple regions uh, and there's the coast and then there's the mountains. Uh, I was born in Bogota, which is right in the center and it's quite um, springtime weather like. So it doesn't get very hot and it doesn't get freezing. So I grew up in like scarf, sweater, jacket kind of weather. That's my weather. I'm all about the spring. The summer and I are not best friends. I can stand (laughs) the winter. But the summer, I don't like to be like sweating. Yeah. I'm all about layers. And in the summer, you can't really clear up. I I know. Uh, I know. I know. I love cold weather and it's rain and fall as well. Um, And I love the layering. And then with the summer, you got also like um, sunblocked, take care of your skin and everything's icky. But yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about growing up in Colombia and then sort of you know, moving to the U.S., I know because your work deals a lot with photography and, you know, displacements of time and space, um, and you reference it a lot during your time in Colombia. So could you kind of help the audience think about the context in which you're coming from with your work? Yeah, so I was born in Colombia, in Bogota, and I grew up in a home that was filled with a lot of creativity. My father had a dark room in his apartment uh, on the backside of the apartment near the patio. And I remember I have very strong memories of playing hide and seek. And I would always uh-huh. go back to the back of the apartment to hide. And the smell of photographic chemistry mm-hmm. uh, was very specific. It's right. a very specific 
smells. So whenever I go into a dark room as an adult, I'm always sort of the smell, the, that scent always transports yeah. me through my youth. Yeah. Um, and so I grew up surrounded with like photography and photographs. Yeah. My mother had a, uh, a boutique, so she made a lot of clothes, specifically like wedding gowns. So in my head, I have images of seeing women uh, trying on their wedding gown, just like these layers upon layers of white fabric and crochet kind of patterns. And so I grew up in an environment where there was creativity and like aesthetic appreciation. They never considered themselves artists and never really lived a life of as an artist, but right, had right. Like daytime jobs and so on. And my mother moved to the U.S. in 1997, and two years later, I moved. And so I arrived when I was 10 years old to New Jersey, and I lived in New Jersey for about seven years, having a very privileged migrant life in the sense that we were not undocumented. We had the opportunity to travel outside of this country, not only to Colombia, but uh, uh, to Europe. And so... Every summer break during my teenage years, I traveled to Colombia to see my father and okay. my sisters. So there was always this very strong relationship between being here and being there. Right. So I, I think of that as a very, as a huge privilege, especially because I, I went to school uh, here in the U.S. It was a very migrant, diverse school community. Okay. And so... I had a lot of friends back then who were undocumented and who mm. did not have that experience of being able to leave the U.S. and go right. visit their home right. countries. From a very young age, I knew that there was this reality in our citizenship or migration status that I understood as being uh, you know, very privileged. And so my work as an artist has often addressed these concerns about who has rights and who doesn't and who has access to something and who doesn't. And uh, yeah. oftentimes is very much an exploration of my own sort of identity as, uh, for example, a, a project that I made when I was in art school consisted of uh, appropriating my passports, both my passport from Colombia mm -hmm. and my passport from the U.S., uh, and I always think of these two documents as very powerful objects of the government and, and that they say something very specific. So in the sense that with my Burgundy passport from Colombia, if I show it at an immigration checkpoint right, in the U.S. Right. or right. in Europe, I am perceived, I am understood, I am viewed so differently than right, if I was right. to my blue passport. I'll never forget getting, um, what was it? I, it was back in 2010. I needed to renew my, my U.S. passport. Uh -huh. And uh, when I got the new passport, it came with a little pamphlet uh -huh. from the State Department uh -huh. that said, with your U.S. passport, the world is yours. <laughs> and that's always really stayed in my mind. You know, like the idea that this yeah. blue passport gives me the world right and right, right. on the opposite end my burgundy passport from colombia the world is not mine with that passport that passport yeah. comes with many restrictions it comes right. uh with a lot of surveillance and it comes with a lot of checkpoints i mean i, I remember right. being in berlin you know my blue passport says i'm a citizen i'm also my nationality is colombian right because i'm uh -huh. a naturalized citizen right, right and i remember just being with a friend who was from the u.s yeah and was born in the u.s and is white and all of a sudden I was taken to another room and oh, I had to like open up my whole luggage and I was yeah. questioned. And yeah, yeah. from that point on, I understood the contradiction and the complexity of having these two identities, essentially, like the right. nationality of the U.S., the nationality of, the, of Colombia, yeah. and how those emerge. And so I made this project in 2011, 10 years yeah. ago, and became this lenticular postcard where these two images, one from my Colombian passport and from my U.S. passport, are sort of like in conversation. It's that idea that I, as a person have these two ways of being perceived according to government documents. Right, right. And I find that really fascinating and, and a very present reality. However, 
you know, uh, there's other folks, uh, thousands of people who don't have passports, for example, and don't yeah. uh, are living under the shadows, essentially. And that's why we think, you know, undocumented people. And, and so my work very much engages with these questions of citizenship and borders. Those ideas were very alive in my earlier projects. Now I'm in conversation with other kinds of ideas, but they're still there. There's still that constellation of right. understanding myself as a migrant and as somebody who's in movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can kind of see that even in your newer work, this idea of, you know, identity and also how to navigate within these different spaces, especially the art space, right? Um, I had a few questions from a few things you said. I guess when you mentioned earlier, you moved to New Jersey with your mom, but then part of your family still stayed in the U.S. You said, I think you went back to visit your sister and your dad. What was the reason for that sort of split? I have a twin sister and we were a total surprise to my family because my father and mother had already been separated and they already had three daughters together and who are 10, 15 years older than me. Uh, so we were not planned. And so my, mm. my mother, for example, was 39 when she gave birth to my twin sister and I, I was born in this environment that where my home was not present with both mom and dad. It was like mom's apartment, dad's right, apartment. Right, right. You know, my mother was a very autonomous woman and she was in a lot of debt. And uh, her boutique was not doing well. And um, she had friends and distant relatives in Miami and in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And in 1997, she decided to come to Miami for six months. And in those six months, she babysitted and made an amount of money that she had not made ever in hmm. six months of her life. And so she realized the economic opportunity and that was a huge incentive for her to move. Hmm. And then she had two kids who were in 1997, we were eight years old. And so she really imagined a different future for us. And hmm. we grew up in an environment where we were working class I mean, we were working class in Colombia by no means poor, by no means wealthy, working class. And my older sisters were in college, in Colombia. And so my mother had just this imagination for us mm. uh, to live in the US. And so uh, she moved to New Jersey where uh, she had some cousins and mm -hmm. started working there and started really establishing herself. And it was really the economic advantages that this country provided her that became an opportunity for her to build her life here and right. build a life for her two young right, kids. Right. So that's why we moved. And right, my right. older sisters, my father, you know, they had visas, they came and visited her. They did not want to establish a life here. And so we would travel. I mean, I guess in that sense, with your twin sister, you also are constantly dealing with this sort of like doubling in time and space in a sort of interesting way, though. I don't think that's enter your work explicitly with her. And I'm not sure uh, how interested she is in that. But I know, always know like and having family enter your work is a complicated question. Um, when you were in New Jersey, how was that experience of moving? And then how did your interest in art sort of pick up and kind of lead you to deciding to become an artist? Or maybe you decide later, but I guess the path of that, at least. I mean, being a 10-year-old and moving to a new country and not knowing the language is really, really hard. I remember crying so hard. Like, it was just sobbing, trying to make, trying to do my homework, I'm trying to do a, a math homework <laughs> that's written in English, yeah. Spanish dictionary, English dictionary here, <laughs> and... I don't understand anything. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. So it was, it was very difficult. And, uh, you know, my mother did not speak English. I was in a bilingual program. So mm -hmm. there were a lot of young people my age who were experiencing very similar trajectories of having recently arrived, not speaking English. Uh, so I, I think the school environment was very supportive in the sense that there was um, I, I, that I was in a bilingual classroom, right? Mm. And so I was in an immigrant enclave in New Jersey, right? So it took a while for me to, and, and for my sister, it was much harder. For me, it was a little bit easier to kind of adjust to the new circumstances. You know, it took, what, 
three years to yeah three four years to engage in a monolingual classroom where i knew i had the confidence to like properly like engage yeah yeah yeah. english learning you know i i I talked to you about my my home in colombia and being immersed in a very creative environment right so going to museums for example was something that was very much a part of my youth like Mm. uh the proximity of new york city to new jersey was an asset and so i have memories of going to the match with my mom Mm. Um, yeah and even in colombia like going to el museo de arte moderno that was like a part of of my youth um my mother gifted me my best gift that i ever received that i've ever received uh-huh, uh, which is what was a video camera uh-huh. and in 2002 yeah she gifted me a, a video camera hmm. i would always go to like best buy or like sears i remember yeah and the first thing i would do was go to the electronics section i would just grab <laughs> the cameras and i would just play and yeah be with the zoom and i just found that to be so fabulous and <laughs> so i my mom gifted me a, 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 a sunny high video camera uh-huh. that i to this day still have back here uh-huh. and uh, that became my window into observing the world i was recording everything everything from the tv hmm. to my mom cooking to being in the car to being on an airplane to mm-hmm. being in times square for example to talking about whatever to making like little films with classmates in right, right. the sixth grade, seventh grade. And so I started accumulating this like archive of videos that I have in a box. Some I've digitized, some I've worked with as an artist. Uh, I was in this period very obsessed with the news. And so yeah. I would pour the news and I would play newscaster. I always wanted to be a a newscaster actually i always wanted i like a broadcaster and i would put on a suit and i would just like start reading and playing yeah yeah and so my earliest project is this video that i made in colombia during one of my summer trips in my father's apartment and i am just recreating a whole news show and the news stories that i'm presenting are really violent stories you know there's 2002 is a period in which the United States is already in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. The drug on war, the war on drugs is very much uh, a reality. There's a lot of internal conflict in Colombia. And so all of these stories are being presented by myself at the age of 12, 13. Mm-hmm. And that's really one of my first projects. And my parents were always supportive of my wildness like <laughs> i remember turning my father's apartment upside down trying to build a whole studio i mean i had lights i had yeah. a camera i moved the computer to the uh, living room did you have a green screen or or you create a fake background no i could, it was just like my father's like little library thing and uh, <laughs> i did yeah. a logo and like yeah, yeah. I, I, all of that wildness was never police it was always very like appreciated yeah and, like, and encouraged and and i love that i think that that was a really beautiful element of parenthood that they both expressed and right. one that allowed me to like cultivate these kinds of interests in production for example i mean i was always amazed by like the production of television and mm-hmm. yeah some of my earliest memories of coming to the city by myself where when i was 14 and i would come to i would take the bus to port authority uh-huh yeah i would walk from 42nd to 8th avenue and i would walk all the way to 50th and 6th and okay. that's where cnn and fox news used to be yeah fox, yeah fox news is still there and i would just sit and look at the windows because a lot of these tv shows right 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 the windows as the backdrop yeah city yeah. and so I would yeah. like look at this and <laughs> seeing like the teleprompters and the cameras and mm-hmm. the, and the mm-hmm. broadcast like all of these layers of performance were fascinating to me mm-hmm. and I went to um, my junior year of high school I uh, 
I had worked at some furniture store the prior year mm-hmm. and all my savings I used to participate in a summer program in Penn State University. Okay. And I went there for, I don't know, it was like two weeks mm-hmm. with, it was like a youth broadcast journalism program. Okay. I was like fascinated. I'm like going to meet people yeah, yeah. that are just like me. And I get there and there were really cool kids, all mostly white. There was uh-huh. one black student, yeah. one black female student, maybe like two Asian students. I was uh-huh. definitely the only Latino. Yeah. And we're in the center of Pennsylvania. It's white, 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 white. And it's like super sports college vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Football, all that. Yeah, and bro-ish. And I'm a closeted gay teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like talking about sexuality was like not a, a comfort zone for me. Yeah. Although I enjoyed being there, I remember coming back and realizing there's no way I'm going to be going to a school that is like that. I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be in New York City. Yeah, and yeah. I applied to every art school in the city. Yeah. And I got into Parsons and I uh, moved to New York in 2000, August 28, 2008. Uh-huh. I remember moving to a dorm. And all of a sudden, I was a New Yorker. Nobody knew anything about me, yeah. about my sexuality, nothing. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I began studying here, and I've been here since. And I attribute being an becoming an artist to all of these different moments in my youth right. where being creative was supported, and even throwing myself into a program that I was curious about. You know, like this broadcast journalism thing. Right, right, right. And really, this is not what I want to do. Like, this is not <laughs> at all what I want yeah. to do. I yeah. want to be in a really diverse, creative environment. And uh, and that became New York City in some way. Yeah. I mean, it's New York and, you know, the places that you can also go to, it keep these different cities keep popping up. I know New York was like sort of the center for the longest time and in some ways still is very important. Um, you were talking about, you know, the newscasting that you were making your father's studio. And I know that this became that piece, uh, Noticiero, which you kind of, based on the documentation, at least it seems like you took that footage and made it uh, into this sort of piece. And I'm curious, you know, what does this sort of reframing of your old work and then putting it present day or recent history do for you? I mean, you talk about these sort of how the past kind of influences the present. But for you, I guess, in your art, how do you make these decisions about picking these parts in your past life and then kind of presenting them? I've been making projects since I was 12. Like Mm -hmm. I I have footage that I've recorded of my whole youth. And I, Ziwan, I have this very intense archivist practice where if I was to show you all of my tapes from my youth, everything is dated. Everything is coded with like my handwriting from then. And so you're like really organized. I like accumulated things in a very like organized way. And yeah. And so in 2017, I I really think of 2017 as a moment in which I finally reorganize my mind. And okay. I, I had so much support as an artist for the first time ever. I had a residency. Okay. And that residency entailed a stipend, a space, and a solo project, and a ton of studio visits. And I had not had that mm, prior. Right. I had been hustling. I had been getting rejected everywhere. Mm-hmm. And my father died in that process. And so there was just a lot of hurdles. And mm. in 2017, I was already earning much of my income from teaching in different museums. And so once I secured like how to make money in a way that gave me joy, which is teaching, yeah. teaching gives me a lot of joy and purpose. And so now that I had that sort of resolved, now I had this opportunity that was giving me a kind of support that I had not had. Mm. And so I remember moving into that studio at the International Studio and Curatorial Program in New York, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and being in that space on like 
July 1st, 2017. Mm -hmm. And I just started organizing my head and like, mm -hmm. what, how am I going to use this space for these next, next six months? Because mm -hmm. how am I going to strengthen my practice? How am I going right. to develop all of these projects that I've wanted to make, but I haven't had the support mm -hmm. and I haven't had the time. I mean, I was sure so many people that you've talked to and even yourself, just like negotiating that balance between being an artist yeah. and being, and, and having to work and living and working and, yeah. and living and working. And it's just like, Oh my God, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I graduated in 2012 and it really took me five years. 2012 yeah, yeah. to 2017 yeah. to sort of feel that I was sort of standing in a, in a, in a ground that I, I could feel was firm in some way. Right. Because prior, it was just like waitressing, assisting, teaching yeah. here, yeah, yeah, yeah. here and there. And so I brought in a lot of this video archive from my youth, knowing that there was an opportunity for an installation and an opportunity to review and repurpose that archive. Uh, one of those tapes is this noticiero tape, me reading the news. And I got it digitized. And it's very rich in the way that the, myself as this 20, as this 12 year old is reading the news, yeah. the, the whole production setup. And then the stories that I'm reading are mm -hmm. very, very charged. They're not just like, sports news stories they're yeah, yeah, yeah. really heavy stories about the moment in which i exist and so i remember being on the phone with my mother walking from the train station to my studio one night that summer uh, mm -hmm. of 2017 and all of a sudden I see these two television monitors, mm -hmm. uh, CRT TVs, uh, these mm -hmm. bulky things, and they're yeah. on the ground right next to a church. Okay. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to call you back because I see these TVs. And mm -hmm. I had been trying to find one of these TVs on eBay for the last few days. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah. there's two things yeah, that yeah. seem in perfect condition. And so I grab one, I bring it to the studio, turns on, works perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe it. And so that to me was a sign that this work that I was revisiting of footage of me as a kid, yeah. reading the news, needed to exist as an installation in this mm -hmm. old monitor. Because that, mm -hmm. that monitor that I present this project on was almost the same monitor that my father had in, yeah. in one of his rooms where I would literally record TV. It was like a 13 inch TV where I would record with my camera the news. Right. And, and so there was just this very interesting kind of like destiny of like my revisiting of the archive and then finding this object in which to present it. And so I realized, okay, this project exists as this installation yeah. that is reminding me of how I experienced the news. Mm -hmm. right? If you were to go to Colombia in 2002 at some like bus station, like those, you know, like in, inter-country um, bus stations, right, right. there were all these big monitors hanging really high up or like coffee shops or the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. It's like this old mm -hmm. television sticking out of the wall. For me, that was a form that I wanted to appropriate and right. present this on. And that's a project that exists like that. It's this high monitor. In 2019, I presented it as part of a, a solo show that uh, the curator that, that I worked with for this show in one of my studio visits said, would you be interested in re-performing this project? And I never had thought of it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. all of a sudden I was like, huh, that's an interesting idea. Why don't I do that? And so yeah. this Seattle piece became this kind of backdrop for this other work that I produced in 2019, where I invited different artists to perform with me and create a television show that had different elements from me reading the news to interviewing somebody to a musical performance. And so it's this sort of like layer of production making that I was interested in. I have such a vast archive and there's 
little things that I can pick up on and yeah. present. Yeah, I mean, you do that. You do that multiple times. I know, and like in shock and awe, you also took footage that you had shot and then re kind of presented it. There's a self portrait of you that you also represented. I think it's really beautiful the way that you're playing with all these different layers of history, and you know how they're interlinked in so many different ways. And then the other thing that I noticed is like you just mentioned when you kind of re-performed a newscast or, or a version of, I guess, you know, I've noticed that performance is also a really important part of, you know, your, your work. I mean, you also do photography and video, but like, I was fascinated with the way that you are having performance kind of, you know, exist, exist as video documentation, exist as documentation of the photograph. And so, you know, can you talk more about how performance sort of entered your work? Looking at that footage from 22, from 2002, it's a whole performance. It's like yeah. me enunciating and almost really performing like the original broadcaster. And so I think of that project, not only in terms of video, but because it exists as a video installation, but it is a video installation of a performance. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, various different projects definitely address my presence in the project as uh, whether it's me performing as a newscaster or actually mm -hmm. dancing yeah. or just posing for, for a photograph. Yeah. And that's just part of the, of, of that interdisciplinary practice that is the essence of my work. Like that I, I, I work with photo, I work with some drawing, I work with video and it, it really is about like, what do I want the project to do? And so, and what is the research interest? So for example, this project that I did in 2019, it's called Diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I was just doing research. I was reading a book. That book was addressing a moment in dance history that I did not know about, mm -hmm. which was this strong relationship between modern dancers getting funding from the state department during the cold war okay yeah and being out to different countries in latin america in southeast asia and eastern europe to perform on behalf of the u.s government and these relationships between the government and artists are really fascinating and important to talk about, especially as an artist living in this moment. So right. different chapters in art history where we have these very intense relationships between art and government. So I started doing some research and started just digging deeper and found materials. And all of a sudden I realized this is a dance. I, and I had an invitation to also produced a project at, at the new school. There was this exhibition that I was invited to participate. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I said was, I would love to do a performance in the Jose Clemente Orozco mural room, mm -hmm. uh, which is a room where Orozco made four murals in 1930, 1931. And the murals represented different social movements of the 20th century. And there's section of the mural that has the portrait of uh, Lenin and Stalin. And it was, it was taken down, right? I think in Rockefeller, right? Or something. No, that was, uh, that was the Diego Herrera mural, which also included the, the image of Lenin oh, okay. and was removed and in 1934 at Rockefeller center. But in 1930, these murals at the new school were celebrated. They were part of the hmm. uh, cafeteria and then later hmm. the faculty office. Hmm. But fast forward to the 1950s, when the United States is immersed in a Cold War and a very strong right. ideological war between the Soviet Union, having a portrait of Lenin and Stalin in an academic institution yeah. in the United States is insane and so during that mccarthy period of, of the red scare of yeah. artists intellectuals and government officials being uh, called as uh, communists and therefore <laughs> the worst of the worst of the nation yeah new school decided to put a, a, a yellow curtain over the the mural uh, the section where the lenin and stalin piece was painted and so that room is very very filled with history, not only because it's a, right. a, one of the few murals by a Mexican muralist in New York, but then also has all this charged history mm -hmm. of uh, the 
the politics of social movements and of censorship. And so around that time, I was doing all this reading, uh, modern dance and communism mm. and the Cold mm -hmm. War. I had the invitation to do a project and I said, well, I want to do a project in this room yeah. that is going to deal with these concepts of censorship, communism, right. government sponsorship. Yeah. And it manifested as a dance. And so that project does lend itself to performance. And I have a show right now of some of my photos from a project called Amigex, which are photos of different friends and lovers in these moments of lust and love. And looking at those photos, there's so much movement. Mm -hmm. There's so much like gestured. Yeah. And that is because a lot of the photos are captured oftentimes when I'm dancing with the subjects. Right. And, and, and so I think of movement and performance also in that space of image making, of like actually taking a photograph and in that moment of the photographs being taken, we are actually in some kind of dance, which can also be considered this kind of performance. Right. But the body and the, the body as a tool is a foundation to a lot of my work. Yeah, I mean, the, the show that's up, that's uh, OCD Chinatown, mm -hmm. which looked really great. I guess I wanted to talk about that a bit, but before, uh, I was curious, going back to the performance you did, how did you decide what to dance? Was it was it sort of like a freestyle? Was there, was there sort of a choreography that was planned beforehand? How did you decide those things? Yeah, so the, the dance that was part of Diplomacy was a few layers from a choreography by Jose Limon called the Morse Pavan, mm -hmm. uh, which he made in 1939, 1941, mm -hmm. and was the performance that, or the choreography that Jose Limon presented across South America during his sponsorship by the State Department. Mm. And so... I was very interested in just like this dance and you know, it's a, a dance based on the story of Othello and mm -hmm. it, it's very dramatic. And, and so I, I, I watched that multiple times, studied it, read about it, and then started, it started grabbing a few elements from the choreography, from like the gestures to right. the drops, to the twirls, and began to piece a performance that drew from those gestures. Right. Um, some of the some of the movement was exactly the same from the original choreography. Some of it was very loose and improvised. And I was working with uh, an amazing artist and dancer, Miguel Angel Guzman, who I've worked with in the past, who has a formal training in modern dance. And uh, we connected these layers yeah. that I was interested in. A lot of gesture that I was fascinated by and that was important to recreate in that space. Yeah. And then also a musician that I collaborated with. The original score is blanking out on what the original score was, but there's a lot of bass. And so I had seen Brandon Lopez perform and I just messaged him. I was like, hey, I would love to... <laughs> find a way to connect and, and yeah. I had this project coming up and I had a budget that was really amazing yeah. and that could accommodate these kinds of collaborations and these kinds of right. interdisciplinary relationships. And so he performed little sections that were very improvised, inspired by the dance, but inspired by the original score uh, with, with his bass. And, and so that's, that's how the, the dance actually manifested into the space. Mm. It was not a complete original, but a kind of deconstruction right, right. of that piece. Right. I mean, I love the way that you collaborate. And also I was curious about your, I guess, how you prepare for these sort of performances. You know, a lot of times when I'm in front of the camera, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I have to like figure out, you know, after what these performances are. And so I was like really uh, struck by the way that it seemed like these performances were sort of planned or, or the history behind it. And I really love that part about 
at least thinking about the way that these pieces sort of exist. And then you kind of talk about this a bit in current show you have at OCD with the photographs. And, you know, could you talk a little bit about how the show kind of came about and some of the ideas that have changed and shifted in the presentation of these works? So going back to 2017, when I had that residency, one of the amazing parts of that residency was that it included a solo project budget okay. and production. So, and that solo project could manifest as an exhibition, as a public program, mm -hmm. or as a billboard. I have a folder here on my desktop for project ideas and uh -huh. a couple of things that I'm always sort of like dragging to. And, yeah, yeah. and one of those folders is a billboard folder where okay. I've been dragging images of billboards onto that folder. Mm -hmm. And I've been very curious about this relationship between artists, public space, mm -hmm. and billboards. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very strong history of artists in the last 30 years, yeah, especially billboards. since the 70s and yeah. largely in the 80s, using billboards as a strategy for their work. Feliz Gonzalez Torres, Barbara right, Kruger, Holster, right, right. Fury. Mm -hmm. And so when this opportunity to do a, a solo project came about, I was like, I want to do a billboard. And I had all this research of all these different examples that right, I was right. interested in. And so yeah. we went in that direction. When I started developing the idea for the billboard, I brought into the studio a lot of porn ephemera that I collect. <laughs> so I have a lot of mm -hmm. sort of 1960s 1970s porn yeah i have a few like physique bodybuilding magazines from the 30s 40s 50s mm -hmm. and all of that material is material that is you know very uh essential queer visual culture ephemera a lot of these a lot of these magazines were consumed by queer people queer men I'm talking about cisgender mm -hmm. muscle magazines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I brought those into the studio and, you know, the conditions of that moment in July of 2017 really lend itself for this project because one of the publications that I brought in is a publication that I bought in the East Village sometime when I was in art school. Okay. And it's, it's title, it's Amigo, okay. which is the male form for friend in Spanish. Right, right. And I was flipping through it and just, I love the scale. It's like small mm -hmm. and all black and white. And the title Amigo was so special. The idea of friend. I had read this small interview with Michel Foucault uh, titled Friendship as a Way of Life. Okay. And then I was some how listening to a song by destiny's child called okay. <laughs> um, girls uh -huh, yeah, yeah where <laughs> they're singing about friendship and sisterhood yeah. and togetherness yeah, yeah and i just realized you know what i want to take pictures of my friends and so i came up with a list of people that i wanted to photograph mm -hmm. i realized that i wanted to do billboard but i also wanted to do a publication that mm -hmm. was inspired by this porn magazine called Amigo. Mm. And I started trying to do research on this publication and I went nowhere. There's nothing on the internet about this publication. Hmm. The publication is undated, doesn't list a publisher, doesn't list a city of publisher of publishing. Hmm. So I contacted a librarian, uh, Marvin Taylor at the Fales Library at NYU. Uh -huh. He had not seen that publication. I uh, DM'd a Bronson. He didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, there's nothing about this anywhere yeah. on the internet. And even with the people that somehow would know of this material, they've never seen it. Right, right. So I said, let me recreate it. Mm. And let's have one photograph from this publication be the billboard photograph. And so I started welcoming friends, some past lovers into the studio and we started dancing it was hot the studio was huge huge windows so everything was perfect mm -hmm. and i had not taken a photograph seriously for almost five years 
I had not really had the equipment. I had not had the ideas right, right. or the opportunity. Right, right. And all of a sudden, I have everything, all the conditions, perfect for photo making. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I just, I, I recall just this joy of taking photos. Like taking photos is it's so joyful. Like looking and making a composition is something that I, I've been making since I was a kid. Like that idea of framing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do I frame? Yeah, yeah. So I was really happy, and so. I published the first zine, the centerfold of the first zine became the billboard. And it's the self-portrait of three with three of my best friends. And the image is inserting a black and white image of desire into public space. And it's a project that I've continued making. I've been publishing a publication almost every year wow. with the exception of 2020, preparing to do one this year. And then some of the photos from that project are on view at OCD. It was, it's the first time that I show prints. I've only published it as a publication right. and as a large scale enlargement as a billboard or actually in the gallery. And the prints are, were something that I had been wanting to do for a while, but just the opportunity had not come through. Right. And now they're up on the wall and I feel really happy because they look really seductive and i i'm proud i'm happy i'm tired um but i'm glad that the work exists in this form and it's something that will grow and that i will continue taking photos for because i i enjoy it and 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 that's something that is really essential for any project it's like what's the research right what am i curious about what is it that i want to learn from this project and do I actually have fun with it? You know, I yeah. mean, doing research for me is very fun. You know, it's just like trying to like learn something and trying to be yeah. curious about something that I don't know about. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing leads to the other. And so with Ami Gex, which transformed that title Amigo with right. the X and the S to yeah, make yeah. it plural and gender right, inclusive. Right. right. I think of it as something that's growing and something that I don't know when it will end, but I'm very happy with that project for what it does because it's, it, they're images that are challenging. And some of these images are images that are of queer desire. They're life affirming. Uh, they're uh, challenging a lot of norms and a lot of ideas right. about what we think of the body and of gender and sexuality. Yeah. They're very rich photos that are disrupting a lot of, con a lot of ideas and conceptions of, of, the human body. Right, right. Of the human body, of self, sexuality. I wish I could be in New York and check out the show, but obviously things are a little difficult right now. Um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess 2020 was like a strange year um, for everyone. Um, I know right now you just started or just finished your first year at your MFA at Columbia, right? Yeah. And how was that during COVID? Were you able to attend classes? Was everything online? Everything was on Zoom. And I don't know, I, I, it's, it's weird, Z1, because, so I applied to that program. Yeah. Right before the pandemic. Yeah. Knowing that, you know, let me have this credential. Yeah, yeah. The MFA. And I got in, they gave me a good chunk of money. We're in a pandemic. I don't know what the future looks like. Yeah. Might as well be a student. Mm-hmm. So I've been a student, but I've also been teaching. Right. You're an educator. An artist. Yeah. So it's been a lot. I've been quite unhappy with just being in grad school because it's not giving me the kind of, I don't know. I, I, I'm just like, I'm really honestly there for that paper. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and so I've realized that largely also because, you know, I, I've been, I've been showing, I've been developing projects. And so I'm just like, very like, why am I here? Is it just for this paper? And I think that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And also because I, I, you know, they gave me money. And so yeah. how could I reject that? It's been exhausting. Yeah, I can totally imagine. And largely because I've been working and yeah. I don't have the privilege to say, I'm just going to be a full-time student. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that, but I cannot do that. Yeah. So it's been a lot and um, a lot of, yeah, my, my body and my mind has been like overwhelmed 
but um it'll be over soon yeah and yeah whatever that means and you know i i, I there's a great essay that i re, re, have read a couple times in the last few months yeah which one by sarah Schulman, okay called gentrification of of uh creation which mm-hmm. is from her book uh gentrification of the mind and she really destroys the MFA program and, and the way that MFA programs <laughs> yeah. are this sort of gang and this sort of yeah. acculturation. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with that concept. I, I really, um, MFA programs are essential for an artist. I think they're essential for the kind of, occult, uh, the kind of credentialing that it gives. Right, right, right. The kind of jobs that an artist would like to have in the academy having a tenure full-time job at some Mm -hmm. university but um and i think that's why i'm there and i'm just yeah yeah. i'm 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 being very honest it's like i just give me the paper Uh, (laughs) and and that's that's for my experience you know i think that there's other folks who are much younger and who have less exhibition experience and less exposure for whom the program and the kind of exposure that it does give and the kind of name that has attached to it where it's important. But I am personally very much rejecting like being associated with institutions. So I don't know. I don't even know what, what bio I sent you and I don't even know where (laughs) you saw that I was in at Columbia because I, I found I, it's found it somewhere online. You definitely hit it. <laughs> what? I, I said, you definitely hit it. Cause like I found, I was just, you know, I was like doing research on, on your work and stuff. And so one of the, somewhere on the internet, I found that it was like one website. I forgot which one that had, had that in. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've done that in, on purpose, largely in the last few months. Yeah. Because I think it's so important for an artist's work to speak for itself mm-hmm. and not be attacked. Like, for example, if you go to a Whitney Biennial, yeah. if you go to some exhibitions, if you see who gets some awards, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. there's a clear line that we can draw between right. certain MFA programs right. Right. and those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is very dangerous for art making because it creates these exclusive clubs, right? Hierarchies. Where, yeah. in order for you to be an artist, you have to go this way. Yeah, you have to go to Yale. Mm-hmm. You have to go to Columbia. Mm-hmm. You have to go to UCLA. Mm-hmm. You have to go to the Whitney Independent Study Program. Yeah, yeah. You have to go to not Shandaken. What's that summer program? Skowhegan. Skowhegan. Yeah. Uh, you have to do this. And yeah. while those programs are important, and, I, and I'm not trying to dismiss education, I, I do think that there is a, a perception from the market and from mm-hmm. curators that somehow, because you went to this program, somehow your work is valid and good. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I disagree with that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm distancing myself from yeah. these credentials yeah. as an artist, largely because. I don't want my work to be associated with those credentials mm. because I don't think my work mm. comes in gratitude from those credentials. Yeah. I am in that program, but that doesn't mean that that project was made in that program. And, and Sarah Shulman says it, you know, if you're poor and a person of color, get the MFA. <laughs> that does not make you a better artist. Yeah. And it yeah. does not make a better art world. Yeah. In fact, it actually makes it, more exclusive mm-hmm. and more disgusting because it creates these exemplary people. And somehow that is important. And I totally despise that. It's like, you went to Yale and what? Yeah. I went to Columbia and what? Let me tell you, I've met compl- very dumb people. At Columbia? <laughs> at Columbia. Yeah, okay. And I've met very dumb people who went to Yale. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I also want to teach in an institution. So it's this contradiction. It's like, yeah, 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 I know. And I also want to exhibit in institutions. But at the end of the day, it's like, what does my work do? What does my work say? And why does my work matter? Forget about my bio. Forget about all that stuff. Because all of that is just uh, nonsense. It matters for something. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but I'm at the periphery. I'm like, I'm in the program, but don't bother me. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot Is of it? like, oh. <laughs> I'm just like, you know what? Leave me alone. I'm just doing my work. You're just here for the paper. Mm-hmm. I I was curious, like like you said already, like you have this really rich showing history. Uh, I know you also, also had like really long history of teaching. I know you, you've taught at a lot of different institutions from Whitney, Bard, all these different places. So it was kind of interesting to kind of see as you were just talking about the the need, this this sort of perception to have this need to have this master's program, you know, having to deal with these contradictions. You know, I think I was reading this essay by Gia Toledo. She was talking about like how, you know, the world keeps narrowing the different opportunities that we have and the gap keeps widening. So all we're left with are these like shitty contradictory sort of decisions that we have to make in order to just survive. So. Oh, please send that. I would love to read that. Yeah. I really appreciate your research. You really went deep. I'm like, whoa, what else did you find out? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I try, I try, I try. Yeah. I guess the last thing I was curious about was sort of like, as you said, you, you know, you've had a long history of education or teaching as an educator. You know, how does your role as an educator sort of enter your own work and inform your own work? I mean, I can tell that you know, it's really important to you as your practice in many different ways. I mean, I love teaching and I, I, I love, I love the dialogue with being in dialogue with learners and with educators. You know, I think that we are dialogic human beings, you know, that there's not one person who has all the knowledge, but that together we have knowledge and that mm-hmm. each of our experiences as people is important in any kind of learning environment. And so when I was in undergrad, I, I did a dual degree program. And so my BA is in education studies. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I was always curious about education. I don't have, there's one sister of mine who's a teacher, but I don't come from a family history of educators. There's only my sister Liliana. But I do come from an environment where critical thinking and curiosity was instrumental. And so there was that program, Education Studies, and I was in it trying to figure out, like, what what is the history of education? What is pedagogy? Also with the hopes and the understanding that as an artist, I can just live off as an artist, that there has to be this duality. And, you know, there's artists who do benefit from just selling their work and being part of of the market. Yeah, there was just this curiosity of of education. I've always, even in high school, that there was always this interest of mine to be some kind of mentor or Mm. some kind of educator. So like Mm. being a mentor in high school or being a tennis coach in high school, the summer program. And those kinds of things always have been like a part of me. And then when I graduated from undergrad, I applied to many opportunities in education in in, in New York. And I had very little experience formal experience in the sense of right, working right. To an, for another institution. Right, right. But I had developed all kinds of workshops for immigration organizations. Uh, I had been involved with a lot of, uh, at the American Friends Service Committee, for example, I had done a lot of work, the Immigration Coalition, like I had been facilitating art workshops yeah. for kids. Uh, and I was doing that on, on a volunteer basis. I was not getting paid at all. And it gave me a lot of purpose and joy And I knew that that was something that I wanted to do. But as I kept applying to positions, I wouldn't get a call back. And it wasn't until 2016 when I got into the education fellowship program at the Brooklyn Museum Mm. that I finally had like a foot at the door. And Mm. it was an awesome, exhausting, (laughs) underpaid, overworked, position mm. but it gave me a lot of tools right from and that I was able to learn a lot about myself in that process as an educator and as an artist and after that fellowship a lot of doors opened and most importantly and I said this before in our conversation I learned the joy and love for teaching 
Like that was that like being in dialogue with art and students was something that came so naturally to me. Mm. And that gave me a lot of joy. Like it was mm. just like, I love doing this. And most importantly, it organized my finances. Yeah. In the sense that prior to that, I was like waitressing assisting and all of a sudden like having access to educational institutions like museums brooklyn museum the whitney the new york historical society that i lose leslie lump all of a sudden i was doing something that i really loved and i was getting paid all right once i left the fellowship because during the fellowship it was full-time right underpaid right right but then like these freelance jobs and you know, although there are so many problems with them, I was able to negotiate having my artist schedule yeah, of yeah, residency, yeah. And exhibitions yeah. and studio practice, while also teaching and earning good money in some institutions. Mm-hmm. Not in all, because not all institutions in the city pay the same, but having that kind of flexibility gave me a financial organization that made sense to me. Right, right. And being in those institutions and being in dialogue with students, participants, informs those in, in some ways, uh, some of the projects that I do make and how I approach a topic, a formal decision, and what do I want the work to do in a gallery space? And what kind of dialogue do I want to generate for an right. audience? And I think of a lot of my work uh, as being very much informed by educational strategies that I'm very much involved in research and primary sources and ideas that somebody can learn from not in not not in a super like obvious like sort of like socially engaged art projects that a lot of my work is research-based and that that research is in conversation with history and the current moment and that brings up questions and ideas that I think people can reflect on. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of those ideas. I mean, I've been teaching for quite some time and it's like you said, there's this sort of feedback that happens and, and, you know, you learn about yourself, you learn about your students, you learn about sort of explaining and that those things sort of create this wonderful, like loop back to your own work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess we talked about a lot of different things. Is there anything that I missed? So you have your show um, going on right now at OCD Chinatown. Um, you have anything planned for the future? There's an exhibit. There's two exhibitions that I'm also part of right now. One is also here in New York at the Leslie Lohman Museum, where Abram Finkelstein uh, curated a group exhibition of different artworks that are in dialogue with queer image culture. Mm-hmm. So we are presenting a enlargement of a photograph documenting my billboard from 2017. Okay. Yeah. Then I'm also in a show in Norway, in Moss as part of the momentum biennial. Oh, Uh, congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. And I'm presenting three photographs and going to be doing a performance later in the fall. That's not confirmed yet. There's, there's a like couple you're flying out to Norway or for that performance? Not sure because Norway's borders are still closed. Mm, uh, okay. That's in the dialogue. That's in, in our conversation. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the, an exhibition that I was part of in 2019 at the Brooklyn Museum called Nobody Promise You Tomorrow. That is traveling to Fresno, California. Um, so there's a couple things and I'm happy and very it's 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 a process to be able to get opportunities yeah, yeah. and it's a privilege to be able to show my work and be supported not only with visibility but also with an artist fee and all those kinds of yeah. benefits that come yeah, with yeah. exposure mm-hmm. so yeah it's a good moment but it's also a moment where like you know a rejection letter came the other day and yeah. that was annoying yeah it's part of yeah. it yeah um, i hear you I it's like keep pushing uh, as my friend Pamela's need says just keep pushing keep pushing yeah and uh, art is what I've been making since I was a kid and yeah here I am yeah 
Um, yeah. Can you can you quickly tell the listeners where they can find you online and keep up with you? I'll, I'll try to post as many of the links as I can with your current shows, but any any way people can follow you? Yeah. I mean, I I think of my Instagram as my archive of research. I'm always mm-hmm. posting different research materials and uh, exhibitions and ideas or objects that I'm looking at and thinking about. So uh, my Instagram is at Camilo Godoy, C-A-M-I-L-O-G-O-D-O-Y. Uh, and then my website is a work in process. Uh, I, it, it, looks, I, it looks pretty well done. Thank you. Uh, there's a couple of projects that I have not uploaded and there's some design elements that I want to redo. And yeah, yeah. But that in itself is a whole project. Yeah, I know. But yeah, yeah my website has a couple of little, it's a portfolio really of little snippets of some of my practice. But yeah, I think the best way is just my Instagram. is It's, a, it's where I post a lot about my research yeah. and my curiosity. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a place where a lot of people DM me and I connect and we make connections. Yeah, friendships and all that. Yeah, so yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate your, I appreciate Noé. Uh, sharing my name with you, and I appreciate your project. One thing that I love, um, Siwan, about some of the readings that I do on artists are artist interviews. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I learn the most from reading interviews of different artists, not only visual artists, but also writers. Yeah. Um, there's a book from the 1970s by Claudia Tate called Black Women Writers. And there's just, Mm -hmm. it's an amazing series of interviews that she did in 1974 Hmm. uh, with people like Alice Walker and Mm. Tony K. Barbera and Audre Lorde and Maya Angelou. It sounds amazing. And um, those questions and those answers are Mm -hmm. really, really special. And I've had that book for a couple of years. And here and there, I, I, I pick it up and there's always something really brilliant and yeah and comforting so i appreciate that form that you are using and so yeah and and thank you i mean it's a great way to start my day just sort of reflecting on on my practice and my projects and uh yeah yeah thank you yeah and thank you for taking the time for being part of it and have a great wonderful rest of your day and yeah I'll have a beautiful night and uh, let me know when you're in New York. I'd love to meet up. I will. Totally. Yep, I will do. All right. Take care. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Siwon Chung. Additional help with editing by Tokyo Home and Mandy Tong. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on seeing color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.